Freak, the show about a city and neoliberalism. And today, all those things combined into one <laughs> deal. Uh, how are you guys doing, Greg and Munya? How are you surviving DEFCON 3? <laughs> yeah, I'm going DEFCON 3 right now, but, uh, you know, not in the way that someone else was. Uh, <laughs> I, I went DEFCON 3 on a fucking, like, 11 hours sleep, um, you know, which was mm-hmm. great, except for the fact that I missed talking to you guys. So, uh, <laughs> miss our podcast appointment. Uh, <laughs> I was hosting someone for 10 days. Yeah, I was hosting someone for 10 days. I've been absent from the Discord. I missed everyone there. So, you know, to make up for it, I created a sports channel. Go on our Discord. Let's talk. I'm back. <laughs> I'm refreshed. I'm, you know, <laughs> had a weird dream, but, you know, that's, that's, that's all right. I think that's a sign of how good the sleep was, is that my brain was really active. Yeah, well, like to give listeners a peek behind the curtain, our normal recording time for Munya is midnight New York City time, <laughs> uh, which is, uh, I think, noon in Seattle. Yeah. Uh, but, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes Munya falls asleep, but that's okay. Sometimes that happens. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was worried that uh, you were just leaving us because of our cowardly wokeness and yeah. our uh, anti Italian racism, which you can uh-huh. no longer tolerate. Yeah. Well, you guys, you know. Don't recognize uh, the greatest Italian of all time, Christopher Columbus, and uh, so that anti-Italian <laughs> discrimination—director, not the explorer, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, children's of course. film director, Christopher children's Columbus. film director. That is the greatest Italian of all time, and this anti-Italian to disrespect him like that. So <laughs> exactly, uh, all the little British kids from Hogwarts are just pushing him into the Thames or whatever to protest <laughs> Columbus Day every yeah. year. You know? <laughs> well, Home Alone was uh, a masterpiece. Okay, <laughs> was he the director of Home Alone? Yeah, yeah. Oh damn! I thought that was a John Hughes movie for some reason. Yeah, he, John Hughes wrote it, and maybe wow. produ- what a weirdo! It. It's so weird that he just vanished. Uh, you know. Uh, John Hughes wrote like the most iconic films, children's films of the 80s and 90s, and then just disappeared. What a weirdo. When the, when the world needed him most, he vanished. Yeah. Yeah. It was uh, replaced by Judd Apatow, which is like the even dumber John Hughes. Like, yeah, not, no, no comparison. I think John Hughes realized he was out of ideas and out of touch and like, like health, health, you know, just in a healthy way, decided to stop trying to uh connect you know like well, see, he, he, that, he was always always working from even in the 80s he was working from a place of nostalgia a lot of the time for the mm-hmm. 60s um and you know uh yeah it, we should be glad he didn't keep going you know yeah that's what's so difficult to understand is uh, a celebrity in america stopping yeah <laughs> <Be> like <"Not laughs> with any self-restraint self-awareness you know yeah yeah that's impossible well, now, to imagine you know judd's daughter is now a star on euphoria so you know oh my his god disappearance he, really shitty kids on something made apatow which is like the funniest fucking like name in the world it sounds so like you know old english uh, or, but like yeah made apatow is like one of the euphoria stars she plays like kind of the goody two-shoe that like starts dating a drug dealer and then the drug dealer <laughs> gets murked spoiler I alert <laughs> This is many years ago in the early days of podcasting when there was a show called The Nerdist with uh, the guy oh, yeah. from Singled Out on it. And 
he was interviewing Judd Apatow. And this is when I first got the clue or when that Judd Apatow might be a moron. But they were interviewing Judd Apatow and he was talking. He's married to, uh, what's her face? Who's in all his movies. Uh, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. um, uh, God. I'm sorry, forget her name. But anyways, it doesn't matter. She's an yeah. actress. She's in all his movies, whatever. But he was talking about their home life. Oh, Leslie and, Mann. Yeah, Leslie, Leslie Mann. Mann. Yeah. yeah, and Chris Harwick's like, oh, it must be so much fun to be in your, you know, the fucking idiot fucking interview style he had. And he was like, he's like, it's really difficult. I mean, you know, when you live with somebody, there's like, there's all these, you know, arguments and stuff you get into. And like, she yells at me about <laughs> like the dishes and stuff. And, you know, and I got to, I got to bend on that and stuff. And he's like, oh. And then she like she doesn't want to vaccinate the kids, and you know I you know I, I got to bend on that. And I was just laughing uh, and thinking uh, that like it would be so funny if Judd uh, Apatow's kid got like polio because Judd didn't want to get yelled at about the dishes. You know, <laughs> <laughs> eat it when that happens. Yeah, it was just so funny. I was like, these are not equivalent things to have an argument about, Judd. No. <laughs> like, I mean, the you're rich. Your kids and are sick, but vaccinating whatever. your kids—that's yeah, amazing. Yeah. So now, like, now wow. we can. Can't, I mean, all the Euphoria actors are getting canceled. So like, this could now be because oh, okay. like everyone has like joked that like you know like they just kind of the lazy cancellation in the meme now is like that she's just a nepotism baby. So that's why she's canceled. But that's not like that's not juicy enough. Her being a like spinning her as like now an anti-vaxer would be like a great like reason <laughs> to cancel her. It seems like the whole cast is now like like you know, symbolically canceled, not actually, but like Twitter's just mad at everyone in the cast for some, some various reason. Yeah. We'll, we'll just start the rumor that she's the one who started spreading polio in New York city. Yeah. Right. <laughs> there you go. She was visiting every public swimming pool in New York city. And now hmm. we got a polio epidemic. <laughs> uh, so, so anyways, you know, uh, as if you couldn't tell by our, our banter up to this point or by the smoky haze, if you happen to live in the city of Seattle, uh, it's the spooky season. It's 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 uh, October, guys. We made it. We did it. We did it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cue the chains and ghost noises, right? Mm-hmm. And I found a story for you all to start the spooky season outright. Uh, this one, you know, it's just got a little bit of everything in it for us. And I just wanted to read you guys some key passages. This is from uh, Vice Motherboard. Some understaffed pet smarts are dealing with freezers overflowing with dead pets. Uh, <laughs> We're off to a great start. God. Um, since the private equity firm BC Partners acquired PetSmart in an $8.7 billion leveraged buyout in 2014, four PetSmart employees say that cost cutting in the form of severe understaffing, the consolidation of jobs, a lack of sufficient job training, and denial of veterinary care and proper habitats for animals has meant that pets are falling sick, forgoing treatment, and dying at alarming rates in their stores. Oh God, wait a minute. They Where, sell pets at PetSmart? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's a okay, PetSmart. I, I, I actually didn't like know what, that. Like, Petco does the same thing. Is like PetSmart and Petco. Those are two different. Those are two different companies, I know, because they have the same blue and red logo, but, mm-hmm. like, one is, like, italicized, as PetSmart and the other Petco is like just bolded and non-italicized. <laughs> yeah, I but I think they just sold the pet same supplies deal. like dog food and leashes and shit. Yeah, you go and in they and sell you the other pet supply, which and, is the and pet and itself. Like wow, I, yeah, I didn't know that. Shit. Yeah, 
I don't know if they sell dogs or anything. I think they sell like the lower form. Yeah, they sell like animals, like turtles. Yeah. Okay, I, I guess I would have guessed yeah. like reptiles. goldfish or shit, but like yeah, okay, reptiles and reptiles, and turtles, and turtles and shit. Okay, yeah, people, people, China. Where do you get where do you get your pets at? Let us know. All right, so yeah, that uh, sounds like a nightmare. Like yeah, of course they're gonna be do- yeah, some like barely hanging on like corporate appendage. Uh, squeezing the last like few dollars out of like a brick and mortar like a uh, massive like box store operation like with living creatures it's taken care of yeah um yeah no surprise motherboard obtained photos of freezers stuffed to capacity with dead hamsters lizards and other animals in one case an employee said dead animals have been in the freezer for 10 months Abigail Fernandez, a 34-year-old former PetSmart manager in Barnstable, Massachusetts, who quit in December, said this happened because stores were so understaffed that no one qualified to do so could take the deceased animals to the vet for cremation. So, yeah, apparently the premise is is that uh, when animals die in the store, which I guess is one of those things that must happen that you don't really think about, they're supposed to Ziploc bag them and throw them in the freezer like next to your lunch or whatever, next to your chicken nuggies for lunch. And then uh, within 10 days, take them to be cremated at a local vet. But uh, we're, we're skipping some steps here. <laughs> so that's, late- that's the cost cutting measure is just like <laughs> keeping them in the freezer instead of like paying the cremation fee. I think so. I mean, seems like they could be throwing them in the dumpster and no one would have ever really gotten wiser, you know, like. Yeah, it seems like overflowing. So some of the photos, too, I believe they mentioned this later. Some of the photos show that they overflow into coolers, right? So they basically bought a bunch of coolers to store all the dead pets. And at that point, it's like, yeah, put it in the dumpster at that point. Come Come on, on. guys. In late October, a nor'easter storm wiped out the power plant at the PetSmart store in Barnstable, Massachusetts. For four days, according to a complaint filed with the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, workers were expected to unload semi-trucks and stock the store by light of their cell phones. Without light or heat for 24 hours, many reptiles that do best at 90 degrees were in danger of dying. But PetSmart did not supply a power generator for the store, instead providing winter winter hand warmers for workers to place in the reptile tanks. Fernandez, the former PetSmart store manager uh, who quit in December and filed the OSHA complaint, repeatedly contacted a superior about reptiles whose habitats had dropped into the low 60s and 50s. But he said they needed to wait and ignored her later requests, according to the OSHA complaint. Fernandez says the hand warmers held the tanks at 65 degrees, but also burned the animals that clung to them for heat. Good God. Out of options, she transported three habitats with pythons, geckos, and bearded dragons to her home to warm them under heat lamps. Pythons? Well, yeah. <laughs> so her There's, house is becoming a lizard house. <laughs> yep. That's nuts. You wanna man. Be, yeah, if you want to be a snake well, no crocodiles. <laughs> <laughs> so quote When I went to the store to take the reptiles home, I went with my children. My son said, Hey mom, the snakes look like tennis balls. I said they look like tennis balls because they're so cold. My kids were horrified. Fernandez said all of the reptiles she took home for three days survived, but some of the reptiles that stayed at the store and many of the fish that were treated with peroxide, which adds oxygen for roughly 24 hours, died. 
<laughs> so I'm just picturing them just dumping hydrogen peroxide in all the aquariums, being like, that should cover it, right? Like, that should cover sub-zero temperatures, right? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, no, no, not surprising at all. I mean, yeah. Yeah, this is like so, what I assume PetSmart was like, like in general. It's just like the vibe I get from like a big chain <laughs> that like deals with like animals, you know, like, but this just sucks even more hearing it. Like, I don't know, man, this like shouldn't be, this shouldn't be allowed to be honest. Well, like, and if you're the manager of a PetSmart who's like really concerned about the life of the animals there, I guess you shouldn't be either. You shouldn't be the manager. You shouldn't be concerned about the lives of the animals there. <laughs> well yeah i mean like if if you're at the pet smart as an animal you're at the like auschwitz for reptiles yeah, right yeah, like yeah. straight up yeah <laughs> this is not a good place to be and the same uh, argument could be made about zoos but at least they have like zoo keepers and shit and like they kind of yeah. pretend but they're still like in cages and shit right i mean they're still like entrapped so you know <laughs> Well, in, you know, I, I'm just giving snippets from what is a very long piece, but the basic premise is once this private equity firm bought up PetSmart, the first thing they did, which they always do, which it was like ravage the staffing levels, right? So they go through, just cut all the staffing levels, which meant that probably at one time PetSmart did have more people to keep eyes on the animals and take care of them. Mm -hmm. And now they don't. So it just means they're dying at significantly higher numbers, uh, which you know, uh, if private equity, when when private equity firms eventually take over all the zoos, then we'll have a very similar mm -hmm. <laughs> impact. Oh, happening, dude. You know? Like, You'll zoos to, suck already, but like, goddamn. Yeah, you have to take your hands on to the, zoos. To the dead lion's cage where the lions just pile, the corpses are just piled in the back, right? You know? Yeah. Uh, so, so majestic. <laughs> finished you <laughs> out. Fernandez says, I'm traumatized about it. I loved PetSmart, but ever since BC Partners took over, they don't care about animals or employees or their safety. I felt like I was on a hamster wheel that never ended. The amount of death and loss was unacceptable. <laughs> I love any uh, person at a pet store who that's their the take from it is uh, unacceptable amount of death and loss at this pet store. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, it's natural to like, you know, it's it's uh it's shocking to adjust to decline of society, you know, like, you know, all these expectations you have that, oh, yeah, like, well, if we're uh, a pet store, you know, our, we're serving people by providing them these healthy pets that are going to give them joy. And like, oh, we're stewards of these living creatures, of course, like, but yeah, that's not the that's not the world you live in. Those yeah. are commodities that like them dying is just uh, spoilage, you know, like. If if they can save a million dollars in labor costs, but, you know, maybe lose a hundred thousand in dead pets over the same period, then then that's working. The system Your works. Plus you know? 900K. Huge. Yeah. Win, yeah. Right. Well, in case people haven't figured it out yet, uh, I think we've entered Munya's money moves. Let's go. <laughs> Time to get that financial advice, everybody. Yeah. This is uh, this <laughs> is definite financial advice. Exactly. Right. Where are we investing, Munya? Yeah. <laughs> uh, 
And uh, yeah, this is uh, I think this is part three of our swag equity series. So yes. we'll, put, we'll put links to part one and two, which should definitely be listened to uh, discussing private equity. Uh, I don't know why I started about with this whole story about dead pets at PetSmart, because the real story I wanted to talk about is totally unrelated which is an article from Jordan Yule called How Wall Street Profits Off of the Sick and Elderly. <laughs> <laughs> Going from God Save the Animal to God Save the People, I guess. God yeah, Save Grandma. The, the old grandma. Well, yeah, the same attention and care that PetSmart was playing, you're paying to you, uh, the lizard cages or whatever, uh, is being paid to Meemaw and Pep Pap at the, at the retirement <laughs> home. So... Jordan starts weeks after Congress preserved a tax loophole for private equity billionaires and gave private equity firms a separate new tax break. New data show that those firms are hiding their stakes in nursing homes, even as those Wall Street owned facilities yield higher death rates. Another recent study suggests private equity ownership can also leave patients facing larger health care bills when they see a doctor for a variety of medical issues. Munya, maybe at this point, you might want to remind the listeners who, like me, uh, their sole interaction with banks and banking and things like investment is uh, two crumpled up $5 bills that I keep in a shoebox uh, hidden in the closet. Mm, lest, in the box. Nice. Yeah, lest a home break in lead to me losing my treasure. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so what, what is private <laughs> equity? Help us out here. Remind us yeah, what private sure. equity firms sure. are and what so, they do. So private equity firms, it used to be like limited partnerships. Now, since I think uh, it was either Trump or Biden, I think it was during the Trump years, they uh, allowed them to be corporations, uh, which means they have lower taxes. But um, private equity firms are essentially a um, a private network of institutional um bank is basically an institutional bank, but it's not necessarily a bank. It's what's called a shadow bank. So they're not regulated under like bank financial regulations by any means. And they don't like take like, unlike, you know, let's say like JP Morgan Chase, you know, like maybe a lot of people have Chase bank accounts, right? Like they don't have like, you know, brick and mortar, like consumer lending. This is like strictly like institutional um, investing. And so the point of a private equity firm is usually to uh, leverage a lot of capital. So they'll either take on a lot of debt in order to buy out uh, companies or take stakes in different uh, ownership. And this is like in a way where us as just people cannot really do. It's their their goal is to kind of find investments and either outright buy uh, companies, restructure them, and then sell them off for profit. And they use that all with capital they either raise from other investors and usually considerably through um, debt financing. And so the point of private equity is to get very um, excess returns on, you know, debt that they take uh, and get a very quick return from it. So like, let's say they'd buy, um, you know, a company for like 500 million, they'd have an obligation to try to sell that back for like maybe like a billion or, you know, $2 billion or so. Right. And so mm -hmm. they have to basically find companies that are, um, you know, in either have really predictable revenue streams or are uh, struggling financially. And mm -hmm. their job is to kind of 
do some tweaks to make them more profitable and then either sell them off or like, you know, just like get a lot of dividends from that company. So they usually have a portfolio of either like stakes and investments, like, you know, like SeaWorld was a big target. Um, Toys R Us used to be outright owned by a joint private equity firms. Um, a lot of, uh, you know, real estate is huge in private equity because it's mm-hmm. the most like stable way to get, um, you know, excess, you know, returns and stable income. Right. Um, so like real estate and private equity go hand in hand a lot of the time. Um, but it's not just limited to that either. Um, software is now becoming a big target of private equity as well. Um, but it's usually software that's not like the Snapchats of the world. It's like usually stuff that has recurring revenue streams, like in like software as a service and, you know, stuff like that. So they, they look for attractive investments in either like struggling companies, um, or, uh, companies that can get restructured or ones that are really kind of like in oil and gas, like have like good recurring revenues, like oil and gas and like, uh, um, utility companies and uh, real estate. Those are kind of core staples that they would invest yeah. in. Yeah, and I know people are hearing us rattle these things off the private equity is invested in like Toys R Us, SeaWorld, PetSmart, and they're thinking all those companies are doing great, making huge numbers. <laughs> Everything's improved <laughs> ever since they purchased them. <laughs> and that is the private equity secret, right? That's the secret sauce, you know, uh, that private equity brings to all these organizations. Now, uh, in that first paragraph, he alluded to a tax cut. And it's interesting that you brought up that, you know, and it's only been recently that they've been allowed to file as corporations. Right. Uh, well, in the most recent uh, budget bill that was passed, right, the big, you know, reconciliation bill that the Democrats passed, uh, Kristen Cinema, one of her big holdouts was to ensure that private equity firms were exempt from the 15% corporate minimum tax. So <laughs> got labeled for presumably some sort of advantageous reason they can file as corporations, but don't have to pay any of the minimum tax rates. For yeah, it or anything. I mean, for the longest time, there were like limited partnerships, which basically meant like if you were an investor or like bought their stock, um, you were technically a limited partner of, let's say, like Blackstone or something. Right. And like. Um, their whole secret was this, uh, you know, basically carried interest is what it's called. And so mm-hmm. they, you get kind of like um, a huge tax break if you just distribute your gains out to your limited partners. Right. But the limited partners are the people who own the company and invest in it. Right. So um, essentially your payment uh, in carried interest, like the stuff that you get when you, you know, sell a company or would like the gains you get from when like people pay your rent, mm-hmm. um, you know, pay like, you know, all of that. Uh you can just get a low, like, I think maybe not even a capital gains tax, but even when kind of lower than that, but definitely not like an income tax or any corporation tax. Um, but, you know, now that corporate taxes are so low, it's actually now advantageous for private equity firms to skip the whole carried interest thing and limited partnership mm-hmm. and just be a corporation because it's actually that cheap now to well, <laughs> be that. It's interesting they bring up the carried interest because in the reconciliation bill, there was also a proposal for a carried interest tax, which Christian Sinema also torpedoed <laughs> <as> <laughs> that project. Uh, so if you ever sit there wondering, what's that Christian Sinema? What's her deal? What's she up to? Uh, a job from a private, a make work job from a private equity firm paying, you know, bare minimum six figures when she's eventually voted out of the Senate, if ever, you know. I mean, it's why like guys like Stephen A. Schwartzman are like gods on Wall Street. And like Mm -hmm. for some reason, even if their firm might not like, you know, have like so many assets under management, like the value of like Blackstone in general is like, you know, it's not like um, 
like market value wise, who wanted to buy out like Blackstone as like a company, it's not it's not going to be like a trillion dollars, even though they have a trillion dollars under management. Like you might have to pay like you know like seventy billion dollars. But despite that, right? Despite there being like larger corporations, like he is like by far like I think the most highly paid like chief executive and chairman like in like corporate America, like straight up, right? Like, yeah, yeah one of them i mean like he always makes headlines for just the insane carried interest he always gets you like, get paid. i mean like it's 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 up there with like stuff that just doesn't even seem real right and so yeah. he's like um a billionaire like many times over because of that and he, he, i remember there was actually this one trump clip uh because he he did definitely um back uh, Trump, he's a well-known Republican, um, uh, like backer and donor. This is like when people talk about, you know, money and politics, like he definitely is like one that actually kind of shapes the you know, Republican narrative and everything and what like Republicans really actually do care about. Right. And Kristen Sinema and Democrats too. Right. But, you know, mm. longtime Republican donor. Um, and but I remember during the Republican primary, uh, there was a debate. Um, I think it was either, I think it was like a Trump and Hillary debate. And like, he was, you he, he, he could see him kind of behind Trump. And like, he was like making this kind of like weird face. Cause Trump was kind of like, you know, it wasn't really like cool uh, in, uh, you know, corporate <laughs> America to like openly back him. Right. And so, yeah, like, yeah, you yeah. know, um, and was so he was like kind of making these, uh, you know, unacceptable. Yeah. 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 Right. And so like um, every like Twitter was going crazy, like of like, who is this guy in the tuxedo, like looking so scared whenever Trump talks and everything. And I'm like, that guy like runs your life. I'm sorry to yeah, say, yeah. but that's actually <laughs> Stephen A. Schwartzman. <laughs> like, that's not just some like goofy guy in a tuxedo guy. It's like, you should know his name. <laughs> <laughs> he actually runs the country. You should know yeah. some things about him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, cool to hear all this about private equity. Uh, let's get into maybe some details about what's going on with them and this whole uh, nursing home situation. I'm feeling very good about it from the outset, I gotta say. <laughs> um, Democrats' 2010 health care law, the Affordable Care Act, or ACA, directed the Health and Human Services Department to institute guidelines to require nursing home ownership disclosure. Oh, thank God. I'm glad some accountability Oof. was put into that thing. Wait, hold on. There's more to the sentence. Oh. But more than a decade later, those provisions have yet to be implemented. Oh, oh. damn it. <laughs> As those, a those, very, those very strong and important provisions. <laughs> the only, the only defense. Because knowledge is power, guys. You know? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, right. I don't know if we knew that. But um, if only we knew what was going on with the ownership of <laughs> nursing homes. If only that was available on a, you know, publicly operated dashboard. Yeah. Uh, or, or was in the fine print in the, uh, in our statement for our, for grannies, uh, you know, uh, round the clock care uh, that, it, you know, who the uh, private equity firm that owns it was, then, you know, then we would have some recourse. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. Cause I mean, this kind of disclosure. We could tweet at their account. Yeah, Exactly. Putting this sort of disclosure, you know, bits into, you know, a giant spending bill or whatever that goes all the way back to the New Deal. And it's like a, a very technocratic idea of this idea of like, well, we got to collect data on this giant program we've just created so we can later evaluate, you know, the, you know, the quality of the program and see what's wrong with it. And all this kind of stuff to do our technocratic go go push the buttons and, you know, hit our calculator and technocratically evaluate whether this program worked or not. And it's very funny, this provision, which I think at this point is just like in autosave on their computer when they're like making these kind of bills, they they basically have just chosen to stop enforcing it entirely. And they, 
like these firms just don't disclose any information. Like they just don't tell you shit anymore. And it is kind of funny because you would think for Democrats who are the party of nerd technocrats that this would bother them in some way, except for the fact that it's running up against the interests of the people that pay them, who <laughs> yeah. for reasons we'll get into, maybe don't want this information disclosed. <laughs> but, so as a result, potential and current residents are often unaware that the nursing that their nursing home is owned by a private equity firm. Cool. <laughs> While funds from public programs like Medicare and Medicaid constitute a vast majority of nursing home revenue, the general public has little insight into which firms are profiteering off of their tax dollars while skimping on care. So you, you might be thinking to yourself, well, I'm just going to put Mima in a non-private equity owned nursing home, a mom and pop nursing home, if yeah. you will. Uh, good luck. Mom on and that. pops, mom and poppery. <laughs> <laughs> so, private equity activity in the health and elder care spaces has ballooned over the last decade at the expense of patients' financial and physical well-being. In 2021, private equity firms closed 515 healthcare-related investment deals, up 36 percent from the prior year, with an average deal value increase of 134 percent, according to Bain and Company. This brought the total disclosed value of private equity deals in healthcare to 151 billion, more than doubling 2020's total value of 66 billion. So, it's one of those things like not only uh, is there a good chance that you put Mima on a private equity owned nursing home, uh, there's an even better chance that that will be a private equity owned yeah. nursing home <laughs> if it isn't already. No, you know, it's funny, like um, private equity is making the news recently because um, Kim K uh, started her own private equity firm. Uh, oh, like, so, yeah, I love Kim it. Kardashian, love I hear it. Yeah, it, it's it's um, and she's like basically like actually like posting about it and stuff. And uh, I just can't wait to see like what, you know, Kim Kardashian's like, private equity firm is going to, you know, play up. I mean, it, it was another like large partner of um the carlisle group like one of like the big mm. partners of the carlisle group um left to form this new private equity with kim kardashian too so you know it's kind of making its way into pop culture as well <laughs> that rocks by the way this is like totally neither here nor there but uh apropos of something that's gonna be on the patreon episode that we talked about last night have you seen that picture of kim k hanging out with uh what's her name uh, nuro martinez or whatever the uh, la city council president who was the one caught on tape basically being like racist oh my God. shit. Trying to, Just so, be super racist, so, dude. So Wasn't there some anti-Armenian um, stuff? Uh, <laughs> there was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, to be fair, all that's true, though. No, no. Like, <laughs> but it was this, somebody dug up this old photo of her and Kim K visiting a homeless encampment to like do the photo op with like a bunch of cops being like, hmm. Tragic, mm. tragic. <laughs> 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 and it's just like so fucking funny that... Uh, but this is the world we live in. Like, you know, that yeah. when, when there's scandal in L.A. city politics, like this is the thing you could instantly bring up every time, you know, the rocks. All right. So let's back to the article. Price gouging in for profit health care and end of life care, thanks in part to private equity greed, has left older Americans struggling to make ends meet. A recent poll from Gallup found that basic needs such as meals, clothing, and utilities are being neglected to a varying extent by elderly Americans due to corporate and private equity profiteering. An estimated 23 million people aged 50 years uh, or older 
reported avoiding medical care due to the cost in the three uh, due to cost in the three months before the poll was conducted. From 2009 to 2019, out-of-pocket costs for seniors' medical expenses rose 41%. Now, more than a third of adults 65 and older worry they won't be able to afford medical services next year. Nearly half of Americans aged 50 to 64, uh, currently ineligible for Medicare, report feeling similarly. So, you know, the basic premise here is uh, maybe part of the reason why healthcare costs have skyrocketed, uh, you know, much faster than inflation is that private equity firms have, you know, jumped in, you know, feet first into the healthcare market and are purchasing up facilities and things like that. Jacking up prices, leading to this, you know, increased cost. Uh, why, Munya, might private equity firms be so interested in a quick turnaround, you know, <laughs> quick, quick profit turnaround like this? Why can't they just invest for the long haul? <laughs> yeah, that's not really how private equity works. Like for private equity, you need to have amplified returns in a very short amount of time because debt is on a, you know, a clock, right? Like, like let's not even talk about just the fundamental nature of like neoliberal capitalism, right? Which is all about short-term returns and like, you know, quarterly earnings and stuff like that's all a given. But with private equity too, um, one of the big constraints is that they need to take on a lot of debt that has um, like interest and it's like higher interest than usually like, you know, what you'd borrow from the government. You know, it's like they'll have to be a premium because these investments sometimes don't work out. Right. So, you know, um, when you're when you're basically a partner at a private equity firm, your goal is to basically get as much extract as much surplus value and get as much profit from their target investment as possible to make back their investment in cold cash, right? To then, mm-hmm. like you know, pay off the debt that they use to um, you know acquire the company. So remember, they're not using any of their own money; they're using borrowed money to buy this thing, pay back mm-hmm. the debt, and then extract more out of it to actually get a profit right because if you take if you take out like five times more than like the money that you actually have and that investment pays out well then hey you just like pay back you know the difference but then the rest of that is just yours to keep yeah right and um you know you need to do that fast it's not a gradual process or else interest will just eat into your profits and you know you can't and the people who are actually lending to you are demanding their money back, basically, right? So, you know, in a very real way, like the fundamental premise of private equity is to get extreme returns from leverage in a really quick amount of time. Mm. It's like one of the get rich quick things that, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's, it's a get rich quick scheme in a way, but it's not for like poor people, right? It's for people who actually will get rich very quick doing yeah. it because they actually can do something to their investments after owning it, right? So... Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's how you can mobilize your already large war chest of money to essentially bully your way into positions to take more money. Right. And yeah. And I, and I think the thing is, too, is, you know, in America, right, we, we always want to have this question about like, uh, can we have some sort of moral capitalism or whatever? And I think this thing about leverage that you're talking about, these deals are usually like wildly over leveraged, right? Yeah. Things that, by the way, would have been illegal pre 1980. Uh, you know, uh, to take out leverage loans in this way. But because of that leverage position, it's not just that they are, ta- they demand these fast returns, these huge returns on investment. 
it's it's not that they just demand that because they're evil people or something. Because of the leverage position, they pretty much have to get that. You need right? to, or else the yeah. debt or the interest will just eat them alive. Like it's just the yeah. fundamental the fundamentals of how private equity works. You need to have it, or else your firm will blow up. You know, like you actually do need a really fast return and something that's like greater than. What, and you can either get that through like high dividends, right? So like instead of like, you know, but that money has to come from somewhere. And so they'll usually find places. And that's why brick and mortar is actually really attractive to a lot of private equities because they actually have real assets. It's not, you know, it's not hypothetical. There's no like just like intellectual property value. It's stuff that they can actually sell, right? Mm-hmm. So like if there's like an old such struggling like brick and mortar like uh, corporation, right? Like it's actually very profitable to look at the real estate and sell the leases or sell, you know, the um a lot of brick and mortar stores and just get cold hard cash out of it instead of like using them as the actual storefronts in general. Right. Like there's like a lot of different angles to look at too. Right. Or if there's like a business that's been there for um, a while, uh, a very easy way to get more money out of it is to cut half the staff. Cause that's, I mean like a lot, they'll look at the balance sheet and see where the expenses are and say, okay, well we need to, you know, like double our money at least on this. Right. And so, you know, uh, a really easy way to do that is to basically like understaff people and um, not really pay uh, payroll taxes that much or just shut down stores and say like, yeah, and it's usually like branded as restructuring or like, you know, um, basically reducing redundancies in business, right? Like that's kind of how it's usually framed. Um, but it's just a way to kind of like be teetering on the edge of being able for the business to still function to bring in money, but also how can we extract a lot more surplus out of this mm-hmm. target that we've, you know, acquired? Yeah. And if essentially eviscerating the staffing levels makes it to where the business can't function because there's just too many dead lizards in the store, hmm. uh, you know, you then can just sell it piece by piece. Cause as you were saying, right, it's a physical asset, you know, yeah. so you can literally just sell the, the scrap metal and the land value. Right. And uh, you essentially create a, I mean, private equity, it's a structural creation of capitalism and banking laws and things like that, right? And the financialization of the economy. But it's a structural parasite, right? It's it's like a, a vampire just living off the corpse of an America from 30 years ago, right? You know, Yeah, and like, you know, private equity firms really did not really come into being as we know them. Of course, like private entities will always have like investments and stuff. But the idea of a private equity firm existing as they do today really um, are relatively new creation in the context and history of just like, you know, finance and corporate America. I mean, they really came into really came into its own when the deregulation of the financial uh, industry uh, came about, like in the 80s and especially the 90s, right? Like all of these firms, you'll see that they're founded in like 1980, 1985, right? And like, you know, really took off in the 90s when there was more deregulation of the financial industry because it just wasn't allowed to, you just weren't allowed to do that or be exposed to that much, um, you know, leverage at the time, right? I mean, like kind of to just put it in real terms, like if you have like a hundred dollars, you can invest that in hundred dollars. And then if there's like, you know, a 20% return on that investment, you'll get, you know, $120 right back. Right. That's $20 mm-hmm. profit. But if you have like a hundred dollars and you borrow a million dollars and get a 20% return and then return that million dollars, you know, now you have like, you have $200,000 out of a hundred dollars, right? Like that's not mm-hmm. the, that million dollars wasn't your money, but you now have to your name $200,000 because of that. And that's how leverage works. And that's how you can really just amplify returns and get really rich fast is because you're using money that's not yours, um, but you're using that to invest in something 
um, the loan doesn't care how much money you make off of that as long as they just get their you know money back, right? So that's mm-hmm. kind of a way to think of it. Yeah, and to give people an idea, uh, you know, the recency of this, the first big of these, you know, private equity purchases, right, of the modern style that we see now is in 1982. So, I mean, this is in response to banking deregulation from 79 to 1980. Uh, 1982 from a company called Westray Capital Corporation, who bought a greeting card company with a leverage position of 80 to 1, right? So, <laughs> and. Shit. The, the kicker of this is the guy that led this purchase, right, this private equity purchase, was a man named William Simon, who uh, old heads might remember as Nixon's Treasury Secretary. <laughs> so <laughs> William Simon, who is helping to do the deregulation, people might remember this from our discussion of the Texas power grid failure, by the way. This guy who was helping to deregulate the industry then, of course, found his way miraculously into the private sector, where he then utilized the deregulation that he helped had to make this absurd 80 to 1 purchase of a greeting card company, another thing that is uh, famous for its profitability. You know, so they took on mm-hmm. like basically if you have like one dollar, they took on $80 worth of debt for every dollar that they had to their name, basically, for that purchase. That is, that is a very, like, leveraged position, but that's, like, how the business works. And it's funny because, like, a lot of the people who started private equity firms, like, funny enough, like you said, Brian, um, do come from, you know, uh, administrations, like... <laughs> yeah, Treasury, uh, the SEC, mm-hmm. you know, places the, like that, um, weird. Like, Pete Peterson, um, the guy from, yeah. like, the Nixon administration. Another Nixon guy. Yeah. yeah, another Nixon guy, Pete and Peterson. Guy. He, Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, he founded um, he founded Blackstone along with Stephen A. Schwartzman, right? So that's just yeah. to show like that you know these uh, private equity firms were heavily like correlated to and like you know heavily just tied to like the deregulation of the financial industry, but also it's like the people from the inside actually who mm-hmm. you know did it. He was also the chairman and CEO of the Lehman Brothers afterwards, but like Jesus. you know. Um, yeah, I mean, he and was Peter since a demonic figure in American politics. Another guy that nobody knows the name of. I think he purposely made his name that so you wouldn't remember it. But yeah. Like nobody knows the name of, but has like impacted your life like more than your parents have. <laughs> you know? Definitely. Like, uh, but yeah, it's 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 incredible. Well, let's pop back. Let's see how Mimo and Pep Pep are doing here. So uh, as you discussed, Rudia, uh, Jordan writes, One of the quickest ways private equity firms reap profits off their initial investment in nursing homes is through staffing reductions. Uh, Charlene Harrington, Harrington, an expert on the nursing home industry and professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, told the lever staff cuts can initially reduce costs by nearly $1 million in some nursing homes. The Biden administration has expressed an intent to establish a minimum staffing level for nursing homes. Oh, cool. Oh, oh, but it's yet to implement it. But it's the intent. Biden's yeah. expressed a lot of intent. <laughs> he has. He's, he's been, he's, you know, the intents have been pretty based, uh, you know, I uh, gotta mm-hmm. say, but yeah. man, the, the yeah. good intention, this is like taking the good intentions argument to its logical conclusion in like an absurd way. <laughs> the yeah. best intentions since FDR. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Currently, there are only suggested recommendations, but Harrington found in a study with another researcher, Elizabeth Halifax, that 95% of nursing homes fail to meet all recommended staffing levels. You know, this feels like the school story about like school staffing levels that we've gone over many times, but yeah, I mean, nice to have intentions. 
I wonder, uh, are they having more trouble, do we think, now doing this stuff with the, like the slightly tighter labor market where like are people just are people quitting these things when they get so hard because they're overworked? Interesting that you bring that up because that's exactly what uh, Miss Harrington is going to bring up right now. Mm. Quote, it's partly the fault of the government because they didn't set standards. They didn't set staffing minimums. And then nursing homes keep the wages down at the minimum. So then they turn around and complain to the government and say, we need higher Medicare rates because we can't hire people. But they can't hire people because they're paying minimum wage. And even during the pandemic, we didn't see wages go up that much. So they're just not investing in the staff. They're just trying to get away with the absolute minimum. So, yeah, the, the reason why it's hard to staff all these places is not only do they pay incredibly low wages as a minimum wage to work at them. And, you know, working in nursing for care, nursing care facilities is difficult work, you know. Yeah. Uh, and they're making it much more difficult than it has to be by it, minimum staffing. Yeah. So they've yeah. both cut wages and staffing. So now you do the work of five people, but you get paid minimum wage to do it. Do the work of five people on a staff that probably has high turnover relative yeah. to like right. what it would need to be functioning, you know? So you've got a bunch of people who've, you know, haven't spent enough time there to be burnt completely out and who, you know, don't mm. therefore have the experience and the sort of, uh, support they need yeah and so you know it creates a massive hiring problem within the industry but at the same time for these you know private equity firms of taking these places over i mean is it a hiring problem for them i mean it's just that much less they have to pay and staff you know uh wages and stuff well, it's perfect month, right? because right they they want the staffing levels to be at the minimum possible that they can get away with that that people will still send their parents there because they have no choice, even if the death rate is higher than it would otherwise need to be. But the 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 tightness of the labor market, both like external to them and self-imposed by making it like an impossible, miserable and uh, not very lucrative uh, employment situation gives them an excuse to be like, well, yeah, no, we understand. Yeah, no, we agree. You know, the government really should have should have set uh, some staff staffing levels here. And uh, but, uh, yeah, we'd love to be hiring more people, which by which they mean like one more person, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, we just can't, you know, so they get yeah. to, you know, that, that gives them a bit of an out where they really need to be hiring like 50 percent or double the staff. They'd like to hire like one percent more people. But and they get to say, well, like, eh, you know, no one wants to work anymore. And then they go, yeah, they go to the government and demand like Medicare payouts and stuff for it, right? So, you know, it's it's all wins for private yeah. equity at this yeah. point. So Harrington shares Lincoln's concerns over lack of financial transparency at these facilities. Ideally, nursing homes should spend most of their revenue on staffing and care. I mean, you know, <laughs> you would hope. <laughs> the ACA mandates publicly available Medicare nursing home cost reports so that potential residents, researchers, and regulators can see where public money is going. But as Harrington pointed out in a February 2021 study, they are rarely audited and there is no punishment for failing to submit a report. So nobody actually does these reports, you know, about mm -hmm. how, where the money goes. Quote, so these companies, instead of spending the money that the government is giving them for the care, they're hiding it. They're siphoning money away from the care and putting it into all their related companies, said Harrington. You can't trace it. 
In August, Pennsylvania became the fourth state to adopt laws regulating how much nursing homes must spend on direct care, limiting runaway profiteering, joining New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts in passing such laws. Nursing homes in Pennsylvania and New York are now required to spend at least 70% of their annual revenue on residential care. So, you know, for those of you who maybe uh, have any idea how much this shit costs, every $10 you give them, they're like, look, they can only steal three of the $10 you gave them. (laughs) All right, we have standards here. Yeah, I I mean, it's not explicit in that sentence, but like they don't have any other business function, you know, like, Mm -hmm. you know, residential care is the entire function. So you just, you know, it's just a very nice, like, picture of uh, the, you know, exploitation that is inherent in profit. Yeah. Well, as Harrington goes on, in states without these laws, uh, profits can be as high as 70% of the nursing home's annual revenue. So again, in the, that yeah. case, oh you know, sounds ten, like a good investment. Yeah, every $10 that you're giving the nursing home, firm seven's just stolen. Yeah. <laughs> you know. um, there's a vital reason that the public should know which facilities are owned by private equity. Such ownership can have poor and in some cases devastating consequences. Well, the, the reason you should know is that so that you'll only make the mistake of sending your Mima and your Papap to live there if uh, you have no choice because you're poor and that's yep. what is available and affordable to you. And then, and then anyone who does maybe have a choice who could put in the, like the research and like make a choice to spend an, an extra dollar to just, you know, maybe uh, have some decent care. Those people will will know. You know, those people will be able to exercise that market choice. We'll be able to vote with their dollar (laughs) uh, against uh, private equity owned uh, elder care. Yeah, it rocks. So a, quote, increasingly robust and disturbing body of research in the words of the Long Term Care Community Coalition has definitively concluded that private equity ownership leads to increased costs, higher rates of hospitalization and lower quality of care. Another report last year found more than 20,000 Americans died as a result of living in private equity-owned nursing homes. <laughs> Consequently, Medicare patients in private equity-owned facilities saw a 10% higher short-term mortality rate. I mean, this is America. Who gives a shit? <laughs> yeah. They're literally just <laughs> like, grinding up your grandparents for profit. Like, oh my God, oh my God, 20,000 pe- old people died? Like, we've... We've well, established look, that no one in America cares. Yeah, right? and also, th- we're not talking a serious crime here. This isn't uh, shoplifting a box of tampons from the yeah. Walgreens. Yeah, okay? I mean, of that, course. a victim to that crime, you know? Yeah, that is a crime that deserves the highest possible penalty the state can provide. This is just killing 20,000 old people <laughs> to siphon off a little extra money, you know, so that you can, you know, uh, hedge against your Toys R Us bat. beyond nursing homes there could also be risks associated with private equity of medical facilities in another recent study published in the journal of the american medical association researchers from johns hopkins university get rid of that ass on john by the way let's let's yeah let's get in the new the latest century all right (laughs) this makes it hard to say yeah you can rebrand you can you know, yeah. like adjust your brand name of like 300 years. You can do that. That's fine. Yeah. People, companies rebrand all the time. Yeah. Uh, so uh, for researchers from Johns Hopkins University, Harvard University and the University of Oregon, 
one of those doesn't belong, right? Found the private <laughs> equity ownership of dermatology, gastroenterology, and ophthalmology practices resulted in a statistically significant finding of a 20% increase in charges per claim after a private equity firm acquired a practice. So, again, this is such an American story. Uh, quality, way down. Chances mm. of surviving, way down. Uh, cost, though? Oh, better believe that went up. <laughs> yeah. <day>. like mm. <laughs> Paying more to receive much less. So, quoting now, quote, for pro- uh, is, quote, for-profit corporations are increasingly acquiring healthcare organizations such as hospitals, physician practices, and nursing homes, said Yasha Sweeney Singh, a PhD candidate at Johns Hopkins University and co-author of the study. Quote, given private equity's high-powered incentives to deliver returns for investors in short investment horizon of three to five years, there's concern that growth in private equity ownership of healthcare providers will result in prioritization of short-term profitable service lines, provision of unnecessary services, or reduced access for low-income patients. Uh, I got more than a concern about it. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, the bigger picture to me, as with a lot of things, it, it's, it just sounds like, yeah, there's, these private equity firms, like capital in general, is like in this particular industry, squeezing the last bit of value out of like the va- the the big market for elder care as they basically wind it down, right? Like you're gonna get mm. get like okay, cut costs, get it down while there's still an expectation and a market for like mass elder care in America. Squeeze the last drops of profit out of it while providing terrible care until you run that into the ground. And there isn't an expectation for that anymore because you've made it too expensive for, for getting nothing good out of it, except torturing old people till uh, for the short rest of their lives. And then that market, the mass market for that will just go away and you'll, your parents will just move into your apartment with you and you'll feed them baby food and fent until they die two weeks later, like when the time comes, you know, yeah. and that, that'll be it, you know, and they'll just sell off all that real estate. Uh, that's, that's the way a lot of things go on. Yeah. And I mean, it, it's hard to remember because, uh, you know, social security had such a big impact and things like Medicare, Medicaid had such a big impact. But in the 1930s, when they were doing anti-poverty programs, the big focus initially was on the elderly because the poorest mm-hmm. people in America were the elderly. I mean, you know, in capital under capitalism, once you can no longer labor as a member of the working class, you have not just zero value to society as a whole. You have negative value to society as a whole. Right. And so capitalism instinct is to, you know, ship you off some right to externalize your cost. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and you're right, Greg. I mean, that's what you're seeing right here is. They're externalizing the cost, right, by just refusing to care for these people and killing them via neglect, right? Uh, which is just the world we're moving back towards. Uh, it's not like it's it's not like a, an ideological project, yeah. That's like driven by some like we need to move society to to back to that. It's just like because they're not saying like you know they're not just like going out and shooting the old people, yeah. Uh, because we need to like take we them off do the Logan's social run. balance sheet, right? Yeah, yeah. no. It's just they're 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 happy to squeeze the 
last bit of profits out of the the previous assumptions of uh, an older t- a previous time, while it just adjusts to the new economic reality, which is one where private equity and has all the political power in this world. Yeah, and I mean it's it's uh, important to note, like that. Yeah, as you said. They're not sitting there going like, oh, how do we devise a plan to kill, you know, Meemaw and Pep Pep? The thing is basically, in order to maximize our profits, we have to take these steps, cutting staff, whatever, you know. Uh, If old people happen to die, well, that's just some unfortunate side effect, right? That's the dead lizards at Petco. What can you, or PetSmart, what can you do, right? You know. Hang on, there was a connection between these stories. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> now the show the sort of political connection and just the ubiquity of all this stuff there was a minor scandal in 2020 when it came out that james biden joe biden's brother was involved with i believe a private equity firm whose whole deal was buying up rural hospitals and then mm-hmm. just stripping them <laughs> like again doing exactly what we just talked about which is cutting the staff till the thing can't run anymore and then selling it for parts right and you know i mean it's, it runs it they own this place like that that's all there is i mean they they own this place what else can you say you know yeah it's it's just the it's just the owners of society exercising their power that's all that's happening here you yeah. know and again they, i mean without that they, they've always owned it there's nothing there's no remaining shred of a countervailing force to stop them from doing what has always been in their interest is and to reorder society in this way, you know? Yeah. And I will say, no one yeah, to stop them. you know, Bren used to work at this preschool and, you know, we talked about this in the episode where uh, she had interviewed some, you know, preschool instructors who were going on strike. But if you're at all familiar with the preschool world, it's this very fascinating thing where like the families are paying these huge sums of money, thousands and thousands of dollars per kid per month, right. To go to these preschools. The staff make minimum wage, right, and are perpetually understaffed. And even the directors and stuff like, you know, uh, at a bigger preschool, a director might make like 100000 a year, which is nothing to, you know, turn your nose up at. But they're not making the kind of money that can explain where the money is going. Like, you know, I used to, me and Brittany used to go over this all the time. Like, where does the money go? Like, the parents yeah. are dumping all this money into the school. And it sure as fuck isn't going into like classrooms or materials or facilities or any of that stuff. So where mm-hmm. does the money go? And just reading this article, I was like, huh, I'm just going to type into the old Google search engine, preschool, private equity. And I got up from oh, Clear God. Light Partners a proposal <laughs> about the uh, exciting investment opportunities in preschools for private equity firms, right? Uh, highlighting five important characteristics of preschools. The first being that it has a compelling mission and reason for existence, but then going into, uh, I'm going to say what are probably more compelling reasons for private equity firms. Uh, it's a large and highly fragmented, fragmented industry with strong growth, meaning you can purchase up big sections of it as they explain uh, going through here as a private pay model. So there's no government nanny state to tell you how much you can charge the parents, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, at it has attractive unit economics, which if you're thinking, what the fuck does that mean? 
they later explain it to you. It means you can expect an annual 20 to 30% EBITDA, which I had to look up because I'm not a uh, fucking, you know, financer. Do you know what that means? The EBITDA? Uh, yeah, earnings before interest and taxes. Yeah. And amortization. So it's yeah. called EBITDA. Yeah. There you go. And so it's like it, a way to measure profitability without like, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's a corporate way to measure profitability. Yeah. And because those other factors can be, uh, can be modulated separately from the investment. Right. Yeah, exactly. Because like, you know, like earnings like includes like depreciation, it includes amortization, um, it includes taxes, other stuff kind of out of the business's control. So they're to try to, you know, value like the enterprise value of the business without like stuff that they maybe either have to depreciate or whatever, like then, you know, that's why it's a little controversial in the corporate space, honestly, because like some, you know, accounting people kind of say that it's like a meaningless term um, because Mm -hmm. like, you know, those are real parts of, the business like whether you're like taxes in general like that actually does affect profitability right so you got to include that um but it's a bit ideological right it's like yeah a little bit um, it's like well yes there's this independent value to this investment it would be better if we had a lower tax rate in this state and so that's not really and we should so that's not really a but I mean, yeah. in reality, you know, yeah, in reality, be, you have that. If so, it's going to be the seal, then, you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah but it, especially it, it's uh, interesting for private equity firms because they get to actually measure like the operating value of the company. Right. Like uh, so like they'll actually see how much like if all of like the depreciation and stuff aside. Right. Depreciation could still that's like a that's a tax thing. You don't know if that's actually depreciated to the correct value or anything. Right. Like so it's kind of like, you know, is seeing how much money like the actual enterprise brings in um in general and that's like we'll see oh well if there's actually money outside of like you know the taxes and the um depreciation and the amortization um and interest that you have to pay on the debt right like because that can all kind of be solved then the actual core of the business is making money then hey maybe there's opportunities there right Mm -hmm. yeah and and to be clear i mean this is a pitch right and so the pitch is essentially what they're saying is 20 to 30% profit, you know, year over year. And I mean, that's a, it's a huge profit rate. And the thing is we act in America as if there's some sort of natural law that businesses have to return like these massive profit rates to investors. Yeah. And, uh, that is insane thing. Well, if you want them to create jobs, Brian, as they're clearly doing. (laughs) 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 And yeah. And I mean, it's it's a totally parasitic way of viewing society, the economy, uh, etc. Well, when you're the parasite, Brian, then yeah, that, you're the parasite. That, that's going to sound pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just funny because you know the preschool thing. I was like, oh, of course, I don't know why this didn't occur to me sooner. That that's probably where all the money's going at the preschool is it's going yeah. back to investors or whatever. But. Uh, it's this fascinating thing of I think you could probably just find any awful thing in American life and type in private equity after it in Google and just find the leeches attaching themselves to the, you know, corpse essentially of what was the American economy, like I said, 30 years ago. Right. Yeah. These people yeah. are not creating anything. Right. What was the first thing in the prospectus or whatever the first oh, uh thing they listed there's a compelling reason for yes. the existence of preschools okay right now now <laughs> I, this is true um but and i don't know that like your at your actual like the the big brains who run um private equity you know are really like on a level of genius that you know 
like that I am, but I hear that. And what I hear there is people feel that it needs to exist. Education, early childhood education, preschool, it's a, it's, you know, it's a socially ingrained thing. You want your kid to do it. You want it to be, uh, you, you need it. Like, um, it's like feeding them, right? It's part of their journey into life, a life they're, you know, you're preparing them for that they're not going to have, but, uh, Mm -hmm. anymore, but it's, it's this thing from the past that we understand is like necessary to put them on the right foot. It's also childcare, you know, but like that, as with a lot of this stuff might give you as the private equity vampire, the parasite that's going to come in and, uh, wither away the actual value and operation of a preschool of a nursing home it may give you a buffer that you wouldn't have uh in in your sales pitch i guess to the customer to the consumer that you might not have with something fucking frivolous like something Mm -hmm. that's a fad or like a, a stupid consumer product whatever it is if you tank the quality of it then you know you might have a problem with marketing it theoretically right like but this thing that is like a, a genuine real need and that is believed to be a genuine real need you might have this leeway to take down the staffing to really lower the cost and there and therefore the quality dramatically in a way that is at some point going to become apparent to your consumer but that nonetheless they will feel that they need to keep fucking buying that garbage yeah uh because like they they just have to and and then they might bemoan like oh my gosh it's it's more expensive and i don't feel the quality is as good as i would like to but that's just a condition of society that's just like what's going on around you that's that's just decline you still need to keep doing it you know Mm -hmm. that's what i hear in that yeah and i mean i i think that the interest in the preschool thing as you're saying is the same as the interest in the old folks home which is these are dumping grounds for the you know non-productive members of our society and how can we get into those dumping grounds to essentially leech more money (laughs) out of out of the world as it is and Mm -hmm. it's uh you know you just look at it and you think man this is great this can go on forever (laughs) no problem (laughs) but all right well do we maybe have any uh closing thoughts on private equity yeah i mean i think it's a fairly interesting topic to get into that i think is not necessarily something that is encouraged for people to know about because i think when you Mm -hmm. do know about it it's like not they don't it's not like a popular thing or really have like a lot of spins but it's actually a really a core function of how you know our economy today is working so i i would encourage everyone to kind of follow as dry as it sounds like you know like follow what's happening in private equity or just like look up a few firms like the carlisle group or blackstone and look at their portfolios and see like what they're actually into like it'll give you interesting insight into like where the money's going in the u.s economy and maybe like you know why things are the way they were it certainly gave me a lot of clarity with um you know uh following this stuff so i don't know mm-hmm. yeah yeah and if there's something like shitty that's also like an institution uh that you're you know interacting with 
uh, go to Google, type in whatever that shitty thing is, type in private equity afterwards and see what pops up. That's a fun thing to do. All right. Well, uh, I'd like to give a big shout out to Red Dragon, our latest new patron. Let's go. There you go, bud. Uh, Red Dragon, uh, you can enjoy lots of new episodes on Patreon, including part two of our Swag Equity series, which is behind the paywall. So you'll enjoy all that new content. Plus, uh, you can hop on to our Discord where Munya has created a sports section, which I got to say, I think might lure me back to the Discord so I can yeah. get my, my running sports commentary every Sunday. So it's, it's pretty active already. I mean, it's been up for like two hours and we're getting we're getting some good posts. So, you know, is it all F1? No, I, funny enough, no, it's a lot of uh, Fidel Castro playing basketball and baseball right now. Uh, oh, oh, I that. I was assuming it was going to be a lot more uh, vanilla than that. I was think I was picturing some Mariners uh, <laughs> fandom bandwagon bandwagoning going on. But we also uh, got um, oh wait, does Seattle uh, still have a baseball team? Are they still yeah, good? I know, right? Have they, <laughs> yeah. have they fallen off yet? Like I'm not yeah. keeping up minute to minute. But like have they have they shit the bed yet? Has it I, happened? You know, oh, it's uh, last I mean. last game it did. Uh, where oh, yeah. like they, they they didn't like you know the series isn't finished, but they played the Astros in there. I think they were up by I think uh, it was like seven to five, bottom of the ninth or something, and they put in another pitcher, uh, and <laughs> they they hit uh, the Astros hit a three hitter to win the game <laughs> eight to seven, like Damn. in the last like ending. It, it 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 sucked so much. It was like very classic Mariners. So. Oh. Man, I, I know I've told you all this before, but I don't think I've ever said it on mic. But my favorite all time Mariners story is probably like the dozenth Mariners game I'd ever gone to in all the years living here. You know, I've been to plenty of Mariners games. Me and my friend were there and the ninth inning rolls around and all of a sudden this in like all the stadium lights go out. And we both look at each other and we're like, did the fucking power go out? And then this crazy fucking music comes in. Big screen. We, we see the, the closing pitcher's whole like sizzle reel mm-hmm. on the screen. And, you know, I can't remember who it was at the time, but they're bringing him out. And I just remember me and my friend both realizing, oh, my God, in the 13, 14, whatever Mariners games we've seen previously, we have never been at a Mariners game where they've been winning going into the ninth inning. <laughs> we've never seen the closer come out. And the, the funniest capper to the story, they're playing the Rangers, and uh, I think he walked the first batter and the second oh, this batter This is a game up. for you, Brian. Yeah, yeah, right. He walked the first batter and the second batter up, fucking hit a home run, and the Rangers won. <laughs> fucking <laughs> like, amazing. So they blew the save. Don't too, believe that. So they did like an Undertaker style like intro, yeah, like wrestling yeah. style. <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm old enough to remember back Blow before it. closers were a thing. And I always kind of wonder if Major League was the thing that encouraged the closer sizzle reel, you know, like, but yeah, it's, they, is, they that have, a, is that a big choke artist's music I hear? <laughs> 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 but yeah, a lot of references our viewers or listeners will surely get. But anyways, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, Mariners, uh, look, you know, count count down to that fucking blowing up or not. Who knows? I don't know. I don't watch baseball anymore, so I have no idea yeah. what's going on over there. <laughs> no, it's all house money at this point. Like we made it to the playoffs and won a series. So I think like it's just like, you know, hey, if you if you beat another team, then great. If not, like. We're so beaten down that this is basically our World Series. I don't watch baseball either, so I can't really speak for Mariners fans, to be honest. But that's how I view it. You know, it's like we went into the playoffs after like a 21 year drought. 
Every everyone who's really into it right now in our audience is just like cursing. Curious. Well, you know what? Like, fuck you guys. We're even talking about this. Like, no, I couldn't name a mariner. I couldn't uh, do it. Is King Griffey still playing for them? <laughs> senior, I mean, is King Griffey senior. No, it, uh, for those that are cursing us right now, uh, you know, put your money where your mouth is. Take that five. Take five dollars. Join our Patreon. Yeah. Go to the Discord. We have a Contribute sports channel Discord. now, and you can educate yell at us, us in the sports channel. Yeah. Yeah. It is your job to educate us about how to jump on the Mariners bandwagon? Yeah. If, if you're not, we're going to sit our ass down and listen. Yeah, if you're not in there doing that, all you're going to get is my throw by throw analysis of every Baker Mayfield game. So you know, either you either got to do that, or you're going to have to get Carolina Panthers talk. I don't. Know this is the real marketplace of ideas. <laughs> that's, what, that's what free speech looks like. All right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Let's end it there. Good night, everyone. Good night. Good night.